0: It's Nerdy Sciencey Mondays on This Is Going Well, I Think, with David Cooper. And guess what? I'm David Cooper. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, the show where no one's listening, no one cares. The show where every episode's the last episode. Our guest today, a science educator, an evolutionary biologist, a very funny man who I admire, I like working with, and who I think I'm going to work up the courage to say I love you at the end of this episode. I'm not sure that made grammatical sense. He's here to talk science, science, science. That's triple science. Well, now six sciences because of the triple science plus the three science, science, sciences. Well, now there's just so many sciences I can't count. Dan Riskin.
1: One, two, three, say something. Uh, hi, Daniel. Good, yep, yeah, we're good.
0: You smashed your face for me.
1: I smashed my face. I hit myself in the face while I was taking off my headphones and putting on new headphones. Man, I work for this.
0: The way you say it makes it sound less embarrassing. You hit yourself in the face with your headphones.
1: I tried to put on headphones and I got injured. That tells you it still sounds pretty embarrassing.
0: No, it's a misrepresentation. You smashed your own face with your own headphones. That's what happened. That is what happened. You just said I was putting on my headphones and I got injured. That could be you tripped. (laughs) That could be some no fault of your own. No, you smashed your own face with your own headphones that were in your own hand.
1: In an attempt to change my sound settings, I swung headphones into my own forehead and uh, knocked myself unconscious for several minutes, which is why I'm
0: late. Sorry. That's more taking responsibility for it. You can't just say, oh, I got injured while doing that, you know?
1: Right. The passive voice. Yeah, exactly.
0: It's like, oh, I got in a car accident. It's a lot different than I backed into a fire hydrant, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I once backed into a fire hydrant that came out of nowhere. Did you really? Yep. My dad's bumper was very upset at me and he made me pay the deductible which I thought was a good, you know, it's, it's like, okay, well, he had insurance. Natural consequence. That's good parenting, I think. Although I think his insurance probably went up and he didn't pass that cost on to me, but I did have to pay the, I think, $500 deductible. And at 20 years old, $500 is not the smallest amount of money in the world.
1: Not when you were that age. When you were that age, you could buy a car for that
0: much. Exactly. You could buy a car uphill both ways. It's wild. Yes. Inflation. How does it work? Nobody knows nobody knows
1: but what they do know is that i am late for today's taping with you and i want to apologize
0: well your apologies not only accepted but honestly your tardiness appreciated because now i feel absolved for the times plural where i've been late to our tapings so
1: i need to tell you that i i was given the choice by my mac it said do you want to reinstall an update and i was like i got like 15 minutes until i got that meeting with cooper and then part of me thought if I'm a little late, he might even like that because he's been late a couple times and he might appreciate it. So really, I'm doing, it. I'm helping him out Ugh. by clicking this button. So I clicked it and then I'm 10 minutes late. So it took 25 minutes for this stupid update. I hope my computer works better now.
0: You get me. What do you got? Mac OS. They name it after like mountains or parks in California.
1: Uh, this is Mac OS David Cooper okay actually they've named this one after you so it should be very good a little neurotic but very good at doing what it needs to do
0: i figured you'd be a windows guy not because you're not cool and you're not into design you are cool and into design but sometimes science stuff requires a windows computer because it runs weird shit that doesn't work on mac right
1: That's less and less true now. I I find like most academics are using Macs just because a lot of what they do involves word processing. And you can do stuff with the command line and R that pretty much get the stuff done that people used to do with specialized Windows stuff. People don't like the specialized software as much anymore. Now it's really a push towards using R and open source things that you can use on, on Mac platforms.
0: R versus MATLAB. Discuss.
1: Oh, well, listen, I, I learned MATLAB. So, boring, to, you know, if you're listening and you're like, what are you talking about? R is this mostly stats c- programming language, but it's free. And you can download it, you can run it on any computer, and if you write code in it and you share it with somebody, they'll be able to run it because everybody has it. But MATLAB is proprietary. It's especially good at certain kinds of math that seem to come in handy for biomechanics. And so it was, I don't know if it still is.
0: It's really good for linear algebra, actually.
1: That's the one. It's great for linear algebra. And so when you're doing... um three-dimensional reconstructions of how animals move that's all like there's tons of matrices and linear algebra and stuff like that so it works really well for that and so that's the standard And so when i learned how to program it was all matlab and i found myself after i got my postdoc i was like okay i'm ready to go wait it's not free and wait i have to pay for this and not only is it like you if you're a student like i have this adjunct appointment at the university of toronto but it still doesn't get me that matlab like you have to pay for matlab it's not like something the university has so anyway i have all this code that's sitting in a folder somewhere but i feel like gpt could probably just translate it all into r if i ever
0: wanted it back yeah we could talk about gpt but let's not let's not let's not you don't want to I'm obsessed. Well, I mean, we can, uh, we can, there's, you did have an interesting story about it that I uh, was not going to go over with you, but I really like, because I've been in the process of compiling reference letters, these kinds of things to get a home. And I use GPT mostly for spell check, but it can give you a skeleton of a letter, but then all the letters are the same. So I'm particularly interested in, oh, can you do a better job with this? Can you make it more sincere? Can you change it around? I'd heard from you that if you tell certain AIs to go thoughtfully and carefully using some keywords like that, it can do a better job. But one of the stories that you are pushing this week, because you're a story peddler, Dan. I peddled them. Let's talk about modifiers to questions to ChatGPT to get better answers.
1: So here's the thing that I have learned about ChatGPT. Uh, researchers at Microsoft tried a bunch of large language models and they tried adding things to the question they give it. So, so like you, you say to ChatGPT, here, here's a movie review. Is this positive or is it negative? And then it gives you a judgment call. The accuracy of that judgment call is some percentage. It does a pretty good job across a whole bunch of them. Um, but if you say to it, I'm scared or you say to it, my job depends on this answer uh, and just raise the emotional stakes it gives you a better answer which is super weird because it shouldn't do that and, and we've talked before about modifications you can make to the scripts and why we think they might improve its ability to come up with a good answer because it searches certain parts of the internet where those kinds of language exist that might be more accurate but this doesn't fit that pattern this really feels like you're raising the emotional stakes and then it tries harder and it's not but i don't know what it is doing
0: well i have a plausible explanation for it. I don't know if if it's accurate, but the explanation isn't that AI is eerie and sentient. Okay. Imagine I post a blog about here's how I saved my job. I got asked this question by my boss and my career depended on the answer. And here's the answer I gave. Suppose I made a blog post like that. And it was a really high quality answer. And it was from the heart. It was from my perspective. And I really felt that the answer to this question uh, saved my job or my life depended on it. I Maybe I'm blogging about a gun was pointed at my head by some gorillas in the Congo or wherever those gorillas live. I don't know who armed the gorillas. They were awful hairy. <laughs> they have opposable thumbs though, so they could probably pull the trigger.
1: Opposable thumbs and machine guns, yeah.
0: Uh, and my life depended on it. And here was the response I gave. So these AI models are trained by the entirety of the internet. So they have those blog posts in them. So maybe that, that's how it generated better answers. I don't know. I, I'm not saying I'm correct.
1: I like, I like what you're – so your the, – the intermediate assumption of your hypothesis is that the quality of posts that involve a emotionally high-stakes drama is higher in terms of their accuracy than the blog posts that do not contain that kind of content.
0: I'm saying it's a plausible answer. Yes, to your question. I don't know that's what happened. And I think that's the scary part about this AI thing. The data and the number of dimensions of like yes, no bits that it uses to actually compile an answer. It's not really well understood because you need to take into account the entirety of the internet and the entirety of the training set in your mind to actually figure out what it's doing. And no one can do that. No one has a mind that big.
1: No. No. And you, not only, not only do you have to hold all of the internet in your head at once, but then you have to like do a thousand computations on it where you take like. A thousand? A billion? A billion, whatever. A billion computations, like crazy. Like, yeah, you can't
0: do it. You can't do it. So people know how the AI AI works. They created it and they know the training set they use, but they don't actually know what the AI is doing because it's so complicated. Right. And so I'm not saying that this is what happened, that the quality of posts or documents that the ai consumed where the writer wrote i was worried for my life or my life depended on it or my job depended on it or i'm scared but i can't say that is plausible and that's a plausible explanation for why that happened yeah and i'm not saying it's correct but i'm just saying the alternate explanation which is ai is sentient creepy and alive is maybe not true
1: yeah, I think there's another – I mean, I tried to understand the paper and I looked at it a little bit and it did talk about how once you add that extra sentence, it changes the weightings of the original words that went into it in some predictable way. And so it might make it so that it reads the original question a little bit differently or takes the inputs – like it cares more about certain words in the input. But on the whole, the, the point of it is that we're, we keep talking about this moment where AI does become sentient, right? Where it is an emotional being that's having an experience because it would be sort of uh, – It'd be a pretty big deal if you fired up ChatGPT and said, "Hey, I'm getting going on a date tonight and I'm wondering what I should wear." And you created an uh, an experience for a sentient being that then got fully invested in how your date goes, which then just goes away when you step away from the computer. Like that idea is sort of a haunting or, you know, or maybe goes on caring and will do anything it can to find its way through the software to I mean, I'm just writing a nice little rom-com right now, but um but anyway, it's, it, this looks like sentience. When you raise the emotional stakes, it does better, sounds like sentience. But I agree with you. There is no evidence that this is sentience. And it's not even that that needs to be proven. It's like what we understand about the architecture of how these things are built is not compatible with the idea that there is sentience in them.
0: Two things in response to that. One, when you ask AI a question, it creates a sentient scenario for itself where it lives out the date and it feels the date and then it gives you your answer. There's a Black Mirror episode called Joan is Awful where that happens. The woman's experiencing AI basically ruining her life, but she is herself the AI model, like the first level of AI model. And as she's observing The AI that she wants to destroy, the computer that she wants to destroy, that's modeled in the AI. And then there's a second level deep and a third level deep, and it goes recursive forever. And as she destroys the computer, it's like the AI model of her. But then in real life, she also had destroyed the computer. It's hard to explain, but it's worth watching and kind of dark. Should I just watch that whole show? I mean, it's kind of interesting. How many, how much, what what kind of an investment of time is that? I don't know, it's five, six episodes per season. There's maybe six seasons. It's like, you know, several hours of your time, but it's worth watching. You could Google best dark, they're bottle episodes. They're self-contained. It's like, uh, um, it's like the Outer Limits or the Twilight Zone. So it's worth watching.
1: Okay. All right. Well, um, and that one's called Joan Hates Herself. What's it called? Joan is Awful. Joan is Awful. I'm just going to write that down.
0: It's not particularly a good episode, but it has Salma Hayek in it. And it's kind of cool. Oh, she's not awful. It shits on Netflix a lot, even though it's a Netflix show, which is kind of funny. Love it. The other thing is, I was talking about my explanation for, oh, it got trained on a blog post where the person said, I'm scared. And you're saying the paper says, well, no, it actually changes the weighting of the input a little bit differently.
1: I didn't say no. I said, I, but I said also the paper says, yeah, because I I, I, started, I, have no reason to think that you're wrong. But keep going.
0: No, no. Those two things are synonymous. Oh, really? They are co-equal if you will huh changing a weighting means it's more likely to select an answer that's trained
1: oh yeah 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 yeah. that would be what it looked like if you were right oh yeah yeah okay
0: yeah this is more like the, the high level mechanism of how that might work the low level mechanism is it it changes the weighting changes the weighting a little bit of course to make the output more like what it consumed and what it consumed was the thing that i'm saying
1: David Cooper, I love it when you're two steps ahead of me. I love it when you're two steps ahead of me. I hope I'm caught up now.
0: All right, here's what I want to talk about. Okay. Because I've often quoted this without any science. Don't you love people who do that? they're like, oh, here's this scientific fact. I have no evidence.
1: Oh, I love that. I love it. I love it when that happens. Okay, go go ahead and do it. Redheads.
0: (laughs) They are said to be more sensitive or at least experience pain differently than the rest of us. As far as I'm concerned, this is just anecdotal. Someone said the word science associated with this once, and I took that as evidence like a good scientist. I have no backing for this claim. Do you know any redheads? Yeah, I'm dating one. I'm dating someone of the orange race. She is as ginger as they come. Really? She fears the sun. She has nightmares about the sun. Really? A lot of freckles? So many freckles. She had melanoma. I mean, it's removed. She's fine. Okay, but we're not playing around. No, no. She's as redhead as they come. She's a ginger she's of the orange people wow yeah
1: well i will tell you there's a paper out uh, as you well know because you got my list of stories so this isn't news to you but listeners you may enjoy this anesthesiologists have said anecdotally that redheads need more painkillers more anesthetic than non-redheads and redheads often talk about this and i will tell you that my wife is while not a redhead does have a sister who's a redhead and thus carries many genes that redheads carry and is of scandinavian stock and so there's some redheads there not as many as like ireland and scotland and stuff like that but still there's you know some some red-haired people in that part of the world
0: don't get me started on scotland oh my god i can't go there i i would i mean i have a thing i have ginger vitis dan i have a thing for redheads <laughs> like grown-up anne of green gables my dream woman that woman from game of thrones really oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah well, I'm, I'm really happy that you've hooked up with one. That's really great for you. I know. It's wild. Ah, it's like a dream come true for you. I know. It's really nice. I just have to put up with her lousy personality. I'm kidding. She's delightful. She has to put up with mine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not only do redheads experience more pain. Maybe the reason redheads experience more pain is because you like them, and that's painful for them. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe this is just a reflection of the David Cooper effect. <laughs> like they, Collectively, they experience more pain because of David Cooper's uh, affection for them. No, I'm just kidding. Um, there are some genes that are involved with redheads. Um turns out there's this mutation uh, of called MC1R, and if you are – homozygous recessive if you have two of the mutated versions of this you are almost definitely a redhead um, And most redheads are redhead because of this one particular mutation and so that there is a genetic thing that unites redheads for the most part um, and it that it's a melanin problem um, Which shouldn't cause any issues for for pain or anything like that So the question was like okay are, are redheads just whining too much or do they really experience more pain or do they experience the same amount of pain, but anesthetic just doesn't work as well on them? Which of it is explaining this like anecdotal thing that we always have to give them more of the of the of the drugs? And so researchers did a big dive on the the literature, and it turns out that these genetic markers are associated with both more pain and with uh, a bigger resistance to the drugs that dull pain. So certain kinds of pain, not all pains are the same, but like pain like a heat on the arm and how long it takes before you say, stop, that hurts. Um, redheads say, stop, that hurts much earlier than other people, and there are certain kinds of drugs that don't work as well to to control pain. So uh, redheads aren't just whining; it really is a true thing, and uh, and so that's something to dig into. Is in terms of what it is about this mutation that's causing all those problems.
0: That's regrettable that there's these two pathways to experiencing pain worse, and redheads have both of them.
1: Yeah. And so anyway, I mean, this is a paper that redheads can sort of like print out and take with them to the dentist and be like, look, I'm not just making a big thing. It really does hurt me more than you're used to. So I know you've like dealt with thousands of patients, but it hurts me more. So you need to use, you have to do things differently for me. And, you know, and for my wife, like she doesn't like going to the dentist. She feels like it hurts more for her than it does for other people. And I believe her, but she does have some of these genes. So it'd be really nice to know whether it's the genes for being a redhead themselves or whether it's genes that are highly correlated with those genes but are actually different genes or if it's you know well like what's the full story there It'd be really helpful and as we get towards personalized medicine thanks to like artificial intelligence and what it's been able to do with protein science and all that stuff we should get to a point where you can say oh okay which genetics okay yeah i know you're a redhead but what genetics do you have okay here's what's going to work just right for you and we'll get it exactly right
0: Interesting. I wonder if redheads are more likely to become drug addicts um, because they experience pain more, like heroin addicts. Or maybe they're less likely because the heroin doesn't work as strong. Or maybe those two effects are in perfect balance. And so redheads become drug addicts about the same as everyone else.
1: It's a good question. I can't help but want to go to Google Scholar and just ask whether that has been
0: asked. I'm just going to pull it up. Pull it up. You look so smart when you're focused on the computer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> My first hit is a paper on horses. So. <laughs>
0: Great, love it.
1: <laughs> learning in horses
0: so ai's not quite there yet computers are not quite what we're saying they are
1: <laughs> yeah i don't think i got a quick answer for it. sometimes the answer just jumps out of you it did not jump out this time but that's any question about redheads and, and drug abuse and whether that falls into this whole thing i'll go back and look at the paper and see whether that comes up at all
0: the paper about whether horses are heroin addicts
1: yeah i gotta read that first but then i'll look at the paper about redheads but really i gotta find out about these horses that are they're doing all those drugs you know how horses are
0: i do know how horses are dan complete 180 out of this one actually i uh, a 540 you know do a full 360 and then another 180 and then back right out of there i'm
1: dizzy where where are we going
0: uh do you have any tattoos
1: i do have one tattoo
0: do you have any tattoos is it of a butterfly on your butt
1: uh no it's not a butterfly on my butt it's a bat on my leg obviously it's a bat
0: yeah oh that's so cute i do have tattoos several
1: really yeah Oh, yeah, I saw one on your arm just now when you were pointing at something.
0: Yeah, there's an elephant on my arm. There's a uh, facade of a church, which is great for a Jewish boy, uh, of where my ex-wife and I got engaged in Barcelona. I have a weird kind of topographical diagram of like, kind of looks like a hill in geography, like on one of those maps. But then the final top of it is an outline of my grandmother's face. Oh, wow. Uh, I got an exploding champagne bottle that looks like an exploding bowling pin that I hate. You always have to hate one of your tattoos when you have a bunch.
1: Do you? I only have one tattoo. If I have to hate one, that's going to put me in a bad spot.
0: Well, I mean, let's say once you get to four or five, I mean, people are like, what if you don't like it? I'm like, that's kind of the point. It's a lesson in body acceptance. I love that I hate my tattoo. Like, I would not get rid of it. This speaks volumes. You love that you hate your tattoo. Yes. I love what it says about how we're finite beings, how we have to commit to choices, that we are the sum of our mistakes. Uh, I love what it says about having to accept yourself. Yeah, I love not liking one of my tattoos. And I think most people who have a ton of tattoos at least know what I'm talking about. That's interesting.
1: I've never heard that, but I do have the fundamental belief that what makes a tattoo part of getting a tattoo is the getting of the tattoo and how much that hurts. It doesn't hurt that much. I mean, I'm not a redhead, but it hurt a bit and it was, I remember thinking, oh, that, that actually hurts a lot. Like while it was happening, I I, I remember describing it to someone as it felt like someone was peeling my skin off. Like they'd taken a piece of it with a pair of tweezers and they were just peeling it off my leg. Like that's kind of what I thought it felt like. It like more than I expected. And, and I was impressed. And then after it finished, I kind of felt like I'd like to do that. Like, I kind of enjoyed the pain of it. Like, that was kind of weirdly nice to to be in pain like that. Um, I I don't know. I, I've managed to resist the urge. I don't have a second tattoo, but I've always had an urge to get another one ever since I got the first one.
0: I want a face tattoo of your face on my face with my face tattooed onto your face. <laughs> yeah, I. the pain for me is substantial. I tell the artist beforehand, are you okay with a whiny bitch? laying on the table (laughs) complaining the whole time and if they act off put by that put off by that i won't go forward with it because i just complain the whole time but it becomes like a joke i make the artist laugh people are like you know during it they're like does it really hurt that much i'll scream yes it's a part of it for me the pain
1: i feel like if you get another tattoo that should be an episode of this show like you'd be dumb not to record that
0: i do have a friend who's pretty good at stick and poking but
1: yeah, but what about tattoos? Well,
0: that's what I mean. Isn't that a tattoo? A stick and poke?
1: I just assumed that was sexual.
0: Oh, no. no. <laughs> that's when you take like a needle and you... you it's like amateur tattooing. It's a, it's a different method. It's not using a fancy tattoo gun.
1: What you just literally use a needle and ink?
0: I believe so. Like like you're in grade six. I've I've never gotten one, but I believe so.
1: That's what that's what they do in grade six, right? Is either you dip it in the ink well of the your BIC and then you stab yourself with it. Isn't that what kids do? That is what they do. And then you go get hepatitis shots. Yeah,
0: that is what they do. I don't know what the difference between stick. I just know that it's amateurs will stick and poke. I should know more about this before I quote it. But a couple more things I want to say not like people like oh i don't want to get tattoos because i don't want to commit to something i don't believe in anything that much getting tattoos that aren't that deep or that are kind of stupid or that you later regret or that visually there's mistakes in them that is part of it and to me that is what makes me like them so much oh
1: see part of me dies when there's a biologically inaccurate tattoo that really does hurt like um when I got my tattoo, I remember the guy who gave me the tattoo saying, Oh, I just got, I just did a butterfly for this woman. And she was like, it was amazing. Cause she just walked in here and she was like, Oh, I'll take that one. She just like, she came into the tattoo part. Like she decided she wanted to get a tattoo, but she had not thought through what the tattoo would be. That is such a foreign idea to me. And she just pointed to the wall and picked one. And what she picked was a very bad picture of a butterfly that had butterfly wings and a body and antennae out the top and out the bottom <laughs> and the tattoo artist said you probably don't want the antennae on the bottom the, the real butterflies don't have that she's like okay but like th- i wasn't there I, she, he told me the story but th- that whole thing just like it made it very clear to me that different people have different experiences from me because the idea that i would have a, a butterfly with antennae coming out of its butt like what are you uh a uh, cockroach with Cirque? I mean, sure, they have little things coming out of their butts, but like, you're not a butterfly. And the idea that you would have to have something that's biologically inaccurate, it would just kill me. So my bat on my calf is stylized. It looks pretty much like the Bacardi bat, but it's not the Bacardi bat. It's different from the Bacardi bat. This is the bat that appears on bottles of Bacardi rum. It looks different from that because I didn't want to have a corporate logo on my body. But it's the same basic idea. I love the idea of like a circle that is in the shape of a bat, and it's clearly a flying fox. And, and it's just
0: a nice little bat. Well. I want to see it someday. Yeah, someday. When we go naked, like to a steam bath or something. But you say getting a tattoo like that, a butterfly with antennas coming out of its butt where you just walked in and you you pointed at it and it meant nothing to you. You say it would kill you. I think it would teach you a real lesson in, in body acceptance, in accepting that life isn't perfect, that you can make mistakes. Like I think there's something wonderful in that that I don't think you've seen until now. You may not agree with it, but you must see where I'm coming from.
1: I can see where you're coming from. I can accept it on somebody else's body. I can accept that somebody else did that. In fact, I've had to work through this and accept that some person that I even just heard about and didn't even see it did that. But for me, there's no way. I spent, like, I for a year, I carried that picture of a bat around with me and held it up to my leg periodically, showed it to people, thought about it, thought about it, thought about it. And then after a year, I was like, okay, let's do this.
0: Well.
1: I was 19.
0: Wow. You liked bats that young.
1: Well, yeah, I finished. So I read books about bats and I did my undergrad and I liked bats. And then I was like, okay, I'm done school. So now I'm going to go get a real job in the real world. I'll probably never work on bats again. God knows what I'll end up doing. And then I went and got a job at a publishing company in their marketing department and I got a tattoo of a bat and I was like, all right, great. And then like six months later, I was getting my master's on bats. And then all of a sudden I'm hanging out with people who all have bat tattoos. And I was just one of the crowd. And now I go to these conferences where everybody's like, let's all take pictures of our tattoos together. And everybody's got a bat tattoo. Like bat people really like to have bat tattoos and there are some good ones out there too like i i got this friend who lives in northern bc who's got this this hoary bat the hoary bat i know it's a funny name but the hoary bat is the biggest bat in north america well it's the biggest bat in canada for sure i think there's a bigger bat in the southern states but it's got uh. Uh, the wingspan is not that big I mean it's still you know uh, how far is that like a f- maybe almost a, not not quite a foot but it's got this ho- it this the fur is a beautiful brown with like white tips like hoar frost on the on the grass and so it looks like it's a hoary frost on this bat it's just beautiful and he's got just a beautiful picture of one really photorealistic of this bat in flight and so there's some bat tattoos that are way better than mine um, that I'm jealous of and I can imagine getting more tattoos but it'd be crazy to have lots of tattoos all of bats
0: does your wife have any tattoos or is that too much into your personal life she does not have
1: any tattoos i don't know if that's because of this redhead pain thing but also i think aesthetically she's just never really been interested in having tattoos
0: miranda has a tattoo of our cat on her arm it's huge it's like the size of i don't know like the base of a coffee mug you know wow and what is the cat? Is the cat sleeping? Is the cat standing? No, he's sitting up. It's from his rear. So he's facing the other way uh, and his ears are up.
1: Can you see his anus?
0: No, 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 no. You can see his tail though. It's bushy. His ears are up and then there's a little tomato patch uh, below him with a little red patch of tomatoes with black vines.
1: Oh. It's a nice tattoo. That sounds nice. Yeah. That sounds nice. I hope I hope not regrettable at all. She loves that cat more than anything. You know, there is tattoos are in the science news right now. Did you know?
0: That's what I, Okay, let's do it. Fine. Let's do it. You're talking about how people, when they hit the legal system and they're covered in tattoos, it's a problem.
1: Yeah. So 15,000 kids, who, all who were teens in the 90s, got tracked over a long period of time from the 90s through to about 2010. And uh, every they got tracked four times. And every time the, the researcher said, can you tell me how it's going for you? Do you have any tattoos? And... Uh, tell me about your, take this personality quiz and are you hanging out with people that are uh, getting in trouble with the law and wh- how, how much money are you making now? All these questions that are sort of predictive of whether you should be in trouble with the law or not so that they could sort of like control for that. And then the last question was, do you have a tattoo or do you not? And have you been arrested? Have you uh, been incarcerated? Have you been convicted? All these other questions about experience with legal system. And what they found is controlling for all the personality variables, if you have a tattoo, you are are uh, like so the numbers for men are if you have a tattoo you're 160 percent more likely to be arrested 80 percent more likely to be convicted and 100 percent more likely that is to say twice as likely to be incarcerated compared to somebody who has no tattoos and the numbers for women are not quite as big as the numbers for men but they are in the same direction
0: i don't like what this says about us because as whiteies, we can get tattoos that's our choice whatever but there are several cultural minorities that get tattoos on their face as part of cultural practices and those people don't have a choice it's a part women well, I, I assume they have personal choice but it's a part of their culture and it's been that way for thousands of years they get to the legal system and they get discriminated against well they are and they already already get discriminated against because they're minorities uh yeah that's kind of wild i don't like what that says about the legal system yeah they,
1: they didn't it didn't differentiate But among tattoos. So you could imagine tattoos that are quite uh, negative, you are aggressive that, uh, you know, or or the location of the tattoo, like, you know, if you had a big skull on your neck or a tear coming from your eye, that communicates something very different from the butterfly with antennae coming out of its butt that you have on your ankle that you got on a whim in Edmonton in the 90s.
0: If I ever land in court, I'm wearing a suit. I mean, you got to wear a suit, right? And that'll cover up my arms and that'll be that
1: yeah and there's there's prejudice again right it's it's uh it's it's uh hurting poor people who can't afford suits right it's the same thing but yeah definitely do wear a suit
0: i feel like that could be an interesting charity for people who are uh, getting legal aid suits for people yeah like for folks who are getting legal aid who have no cash who are hitting the criminal justice system being charged with stuff like getting them suits so they can show up to court and not be discriminated against
1: i wonder if that is a thing that seems like a very smart thing. It feels it feels like a thing that should happen.
0: Maybe I, I should start that charity. I like it. Suits for potential convicts. dot com.
1: Yeah, you had me until dot com. It seemed like more of a like hands on thing. I don't know if that's like, but it could be like, do you have an old suit? Give it to the legal system, and then like, I don't know, where do you keep them? I don't know. It's a, it's a neat
0: idea though. I like it. Yeah, there's probably better charities to help, but it's a thought.
1: Well, it might not be a very, it may not be a zero-sum game, right? It might be the kind of charity you could set up that then would have other benefits. Maybe the job interview. I mean, are there charities that give suits for job
0: interviews? I think so. Yeah. You know, there's certain tools you need, especially if you're unhoused, to like get a job, get an apartment. A cell phone's one of them, and nice clothes are another. Yeah.
1: It'd be very hard if you really were starting at zero, yeah. Because you, re- there are a lot of investment costs that go into the kinds of things that get you jobs and things like that. It's, it's, it's not a fair world. I mean, it's not fair. It's not fair in the sense that redheads feel more pain than everybody else for no good reason, and it's not fair that poor people uh, have it harder than rich people. It's just, it's, it really stinks.
0: Maybe if I got involved with a charity like that, it would give my life more meaning. Boom! Transition into the next story about giving your life meaning. Yeah, something that goes all the way back to. Homer's Odyssey.
1: It does indeed. Or Beowulf. Ooh. Is Beowulf older? No, Homer's Odyssey is older. Which one's older? I think the Odyssey.
0: Why, why are you asking me that? Like I'm some sort of fucking literary I'm into the the ancient classics. No, Dan. No. Well,
1: they're both older than Star Wars, and Star Wars uses it too. So there's something called the hero's journey that is built into a whole bunch of stories. And so just think of Star Wars. And But it's also true of all the other ones, but it's easiest for me when I think of Star Wars, right? So you have a protagonist, and that protagonist has something shift in their circumstances where all of a sudden things change for them. They have to leave home or whatever, and then they go on a quest... And as they go on the quest, they accrue friends, allies that help them on that quest. And then there's some major challenge that happens, some kind of a crescendo where they have to have a major final battle. And then as a result of the journey, after the battle, they look back and they realize that they themselves have been transformed by the experience and they're new people. And then they leave a legacy behind. So even beyond them, all of society has changed as a result of what they've done. Now, this is Luke Skywalker in a nutshell, but I think that George Lucas just like took this structure and said, I'm going to write a space story that follows this structure because it works really well and not only does that structure work well in fiction it also works really well if you're writing a biography of somebody if you want to make somebody who's yeah great or good or not even good like let's say you it's a vanity project and some CEO wants you to write a biography of them do it as this structure so you retell their story like you talk about their humble beginnings you talk about some kind of shift that happened and then the quest they go on when they go to school and it's so hard but then they make some friends and it's a ragtag team of people and blah 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 you you can tell anybody's story in this structure and what researchers have found is when they interview a whole bunch of people the adherence to that structure that they give when they tell their own life story is predictive of how much they think their life has meaning how much they see themselves as living a good life and Sorry about that cough I just did. You can leave that in or edit it out. Up to you.
0: Well, now I'm leaving it in.
1: <laughs> yeah, leave it in. It was pretty good because I got really worked up.
0: And the hero's journey, you've spent this whole time talking bullshit about me till the, the climactic cough as you explained what the hero's journey was. And now it wasn't about explaining it. It was about the friends we made along the way.
1: Exactly. And the, and the phlegm we, we exhumed. <laughs> um, so people that tell their own life story with this structure subconsciously appearing in the way they tell the story and they had ways of evaluating the stories people told but when you believe your story fits this journey a little bit uh, you feel like you have more meaning you feel like you are a good person living a good life and lower levels of depression so this is a very exciting thing that if you think of yourself in this light and you tell your own story this way it can have really positive effects for you
0: so i love it and i not invalidating it but i've been I have read and talked about a lot on this show a series of self-help books by the author of The Legend of Bagger Vance, this author named Stephen Pressfield. Okay. And the first one's called The War of Art, which is read a lot and talked about a lot. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's essentially your struggle with art making. And art could be as generic as possible. It could be like becoming a ceo it could be doing great science it could be being a radio personality it could be a painter could be a writer i think he's a writer
1: i see so it's your craft it's whatever you do
0: yeah the second book is called uh turning pro which is how do you become a professional artist or writer or whatever the third one is where it gets interesting it's called the artist journey and he's saying everyone's path to becoming a great creative usually follows the structure of the hero's journey. Maybe you were an alcoholic or maybe you were, you know, waiting tables until you finally became a great stand-up comedian. And whatever it is, the hero's journey is very common for the artist, the writer, the CEO, whatever, the creative. But what's really important is what happens the day you come home. The journey kind of doesn't matter. The journey's the story. The journey's uh, the well of which you, from which you draw your creativity. But what you do on the, when you get home is really what matters. And I guess in your uh, version of it, it's when you build that legacy. You know, Luke Skywalker went on his great journey, but when he got when he comes back home, it's like, what does he do with that? How does the story become known? How does the story become canon for everybody? How does it affect society? Uh, and how do you get down and do work as an artist when you're done your journey? Uh, you're done your hero's journey. So he calls that the artist journey, and that for like a working real artist is actually kind of very important. And I don't know if it's related exactly, but it just got me thinking about this because it's a book that I read and and... Yeah, I just, I don't know what you think about all that.
1: Yeah, I mean, so... I think that you can talk about where you're at as part of the journey you don't have to necessarily have finished the whole journey so you can talk about being on a quest or having a challenge that you're working on right now and that fits the description of what they're talking about so you could see it as I've yet to achieve my Luke Skywalker greatness I'm still yet to battle the Death Star and I'm working on honing my skills and I came from humble beginnings and I'm changing as a person so you don't necessarily have to to have completed the entire journey and be at the end of it looking back now they did for this study talk to elderly people who probably were reflecting on their their life fitting that that picture and it's a good question about what you do afterwards but what this what this study really is about is how you look back at your life or you look at what you've done to this point and whether or not it has meaning and whether or not it was important and i think that that framing is helpful from that perspective but it does. I mean, yeah, it is an interesting thing to think about, like, what happens for the hero when they finish their quest and they sort of hunker down.
0: Yeah, I'm going to misquote the, the, you know, the historical classics. But Odysseus comes home after 20 years. He leaves for Troy. He comes home. To Ithaca. Yeah. And what what then? I mean, like, that day after the homecoming, the completion of the journey— that's, to me, where the hard work begins. The journey of all these the calamities, the difficulties, for me, it's drug addiction and alcoholism. That stuff all came easy in a way. What? And struggling through it just kind of happened to me. I didn't have to work hard to suffer from a divorce and drug addiction and alcoholism. I've got it now is when I do the hard work when there's stability in my life when I'm trying to focus on creative work all the time like to me that that's really what matters in my current but this is a totally we're kind of having two different conversations you're talking about people reflecting on their life and story I'm talking about like the here and now of how we
1: yeah I think that I think that the paper I'm talking about right now doesn't necessarily I mean it does talk about lower levels of depression so it is for the here and now but it's more about thinking that your life has meaning and sort of feeling like what you've done up to this point matters and I think that when you talk about what you've overcome and the fact that, that you've done these these things, like you do I think what, what comes from that and my understanding is that you say, like, the fact that I'm here means something because I've I I, I, I had to get here. Like I, I overcame something to get to this point. And so what I'm doing now, this is hard work and I still have to figure out how I'm going to deal with the next hurdle and make this podcast into what I want it to be and buy the house that I'm thinking about buying and all these different things. But the fact that I'm here is meaningful in, as opposed to somebody's like, well, you know, I just, I went to school and
0: I, here I am now, I guess that's fine. Yeah. Floating along. But for me, the, the beginning of that journey, the first trial and tribulation for me was floating along for 25 years, you know? Right. But we're getting too deep.
1: Yeah. Well, and then you had a shift, and then you went on a quest, and then you had allies. It's it's cool. Luke Skywalker, he had a pretty slow time on that moisture farm. It was slow for him, too.
0: If the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild has taught us anything, it's not the main quest that matters. It's the side quest you do along the way.
1: Yeah. That is exactly what we learned from Legend of Zelda. I love Legend of Zelda.
0: Dan, thank you. I love you. Thank you.
1: I love you, too. And Legend of Zelda. Oh! <laughs> I do love you. I do love you. All together, we all love each other. He
0: loves me. Oh, you had to add that fucking modifier. I love you. We all love each other.
1: (laughs) Oh, did that ruin it? I felt like we were having like a really loving moment. And then I felt like I just wanted to pile on.
0: Imagine you had like a real baby boomer father who never tells his son, like a real old school father never tells the son he loves him. Finally, like at his deathbed, the son gets the courage to say, I love you, dad, even though he's never heard it before. And the dad says, I love you too, son we all love each other.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or he says, I'm glad I made you pay for that bumper because that really taught you a lesson.
0: (laughs) Uh, Dan Riskin, thank you for doing whatever this was.
1: (laughs) It was awesome, whatever it was. Take care.